So, um, welcome back, those of you that were here last night. Those of you that were not, I'll do like a little brief recap. But um, the first thing I want to start off talking about is, um, is the St. Dionysius quote that I gave that I'm sure, I, I use this one in class all the time, and it's definitely one of those mind-blowing things, which uh, for students, which also, when I use it in class, I bring us to evaluate a lot of atheist claims against someone like Dionysius and his apophatic theology. I'll just put it this way. Atheists like David Hume, um, Sigmund Freud, and Ludwig Feuerbach all claimed that if you take the mystical approach to theology like Dionysius, that you might as well be an atheist. Because their perspective is like, well, if you read like that sort of passage like I read last night of Dionysius, it's like, well, you just negated everything that people say that they believe about God, so might as well be an atheist. The way Freud puts it is like, if he's not this, not this, not, not anything that you, we can relate to, um, then sure, he's, your God is now secure against attacks from atheists and so forth and science and whatnot, but he's also not interesting to anyone because <laughs> if he has no discernible qualities and no he's not this, not power, not goodness the way you think of it, not fatherhood, sonship, spirit, etc. It's like, what the heck is Dionysius talking about? And I actually point, give it to my students. What do you think? Do you think these atheists were right that if you take this kind of theological approach, you might as well be an atheist? And often, you know, the class is pretty divided on it. You know, half of them thinks, yeah, well, he, he just blew everything that <laughs> seems to be dear to Christian theology out of the water. What's the point? So I want to talk about just briefly two things to help clarify there. Because um, I did mention that it's kind of like science and so forth, but I, I'll, I'll just take people through the essence of what Dionysius is after and why it is actually, I think, critically important to not only the way we think, but also the way we like practically live our spirituality. So with Dionysius' apophatic theology, apophatic theology is actually just one part of a threefold movement, because everything's Trinitarian now, church, right? A threefold movement. And apophatic, this word apophatic, if you haven't heard it before, means neg negation or to speak away, to speak what something is not. Okay? But apophatic theology is one part of mystical theology. Apophatic theology starts with what's called cataphatic theology, which is to say positive statements, make positive claims about God. So in other words, you start off saying, for Dionysius, all theology has to start with our core claim. God is love. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is um, goodness. God is being. God is all these sorts of things that we hold God to be. But what Dionysius' point is, the second you say that, you have some real knowledge that's pointing you in the right direction. But right now, whatever... I, whatever you, whatever you, 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 you have in your head about what those words mean, it's partly true. Okay. You've gotten a portion of truth, but let's just do some basic mathematical principles here. I'm a little advanced mathematical, but to 
or one. So some of you, this will be straightforward, some of you, you'll have to think back to high school, you know, trigonometry or calculus if you took that, college, et cetera. The point is this, any finite number, one, divided by infinity is what? That, it becomes essentially zero, right? A limit approach in geotechnic, but zero for this. <laughs> if it's 100 divided by infinity, what does it turn out to be? If it's a million divided by infinity, what does it turn out to be? If it's 10 quadrillion divided by infinity, what does it turn out to be? <laughs> Zero, right? So you see on the one hand, in the face of infinity, any amount turns out to be zero, okay? At the same time, the paradox is, is one a certain way on the way to infinity that zero is not? Yes, it is. Is a million further on the way towards infinity than one? Yes, it is. Is 10 quadrillion further on the way? This is what's at stake in, in Dionysius' thing. He's saying, if you think that once you've, you know, to put it like rather crudely, you've achieved 100 points in how good you are at loving people. You're like, oh, that's God, okay? You're like, good, I know, I know how to love now. But what actually happens is you become someone who does not know how to love. Because you're no longer open to the growth to how it's always deeper. There's always more. There's always something beyond you. Right? So in that sense, <coughs> apophatic theology moves something like this. God is love. But God, the next thing you have to say is, whatever it is you currently think of as love, He's not that. He's beyond that. Which is in the final movement is God is beyond love. And the whole point of that is to keep us always pressing forward. The way I put it is, if you have a perfectly loving five-year-old, okay, and when that five-year-old is 15, they love exactly the same way, what do you have now? You have a very, yeah, a, a, Monster at worst and, I guess, spoiled brat at best, which maybe, I don't know, are the same. I don't know. But the, <laughs> the um, and then a perfectly loving 15-year-old at age 30, if they have not grown in deeper love, you're going to have someone that's going to end up in divorce in their marriage. Okay? Like, you have to constantly always be growing, and that requires letting go of what you thought you knew before, even though it had very real truth. And that's not just the concepts, but it's also what we've come to experience, right? So that's the other side. You've, talking about this postmodern stuff, experience is like so key to it being like truth. Like, I've experienced God. For a postmodernist type thinker, that's like, okay, that's something you can't argue with that really. If you've experienced God, you like have an encounter with God, that's a truth. But even our experiences of God acting in our life, we have to have the same attitude towards if we want to keep growing. So, let me give an example. Say someone's like, I just knew through prayer, discernment, speaking with my spiritual father, speaking with other holy people I care about or respect at my church, God was calling me to go to Westmont College. Okay. Fair enough. But what you have to keep hoping is, you don't know why that call was there. 
maybe that call was there to go there for two years and then figure out you're supposed to do something else with your life. But if instead you're like, but no, I've got to stay. God called me to Westmont College. I'm just picking it because it's nearby. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that you need to transfer somewhere else, or maybe you realize, no, college isn't for me. I want to go into full-time, you know, work in homeless people or something like that, and I don't see college, or I've got a cool idea for a startup, or whatever it is. Right? You have to be able to let go of, oh, I thought I was called to this for this purpose, but now I'm discovering that I was called to it for this other thing. Right? Um, is this making sense? Is that it, it, it's not that what we know is just completely obliterated. It's that it's always just a piece of the infinite that we have to be open to letting go of to move further into God. Because that's how theosis works. There's no such thing as theosis without this mystical theology. So, so this is a good point to kind of round out this part where um, what both Dionysius and pre previous to him, St. Gregory of Nyssa in the life of Moses are doing with this apophatic theology is they're actually ruminating, meditating on Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai, where he encounters God and receives the Ten Commandments. Right? And so the idea is that basically the whole Christian life is like an infinite Mount Sinai. Well, if you climb, if you're going on a hike and you climb... 100 feet up Mount Whitney. And you're like, I climbed Mount Whitney. And you sit down. Right? On the one hand, y it's true. You climbed 100 feet of Mount Whitney. But if you sit down and say, I've climbed Mount Whitney, you actually now have turned it into the opposite. Right? You've turned it into a lie. Right? So <laughs> it's, you're always climbing further, you know, as C.S. Lewis put it, further up and further in. Right? Okay? But that idea of like going up the mountain and that it, that it always lies beyond you. And then the key thing that Dionysius and, and Gregory both keyed in on is that it's a very curious passage in Exodus that they were drawing off of there because when Moses ascends Sinai, it reverses our expectations. Because it says that Moses entered into the darkness where God was. Whereas the usual image for God is light. He's actually entering into the darkness, meaning the further you go to encounter God, that often what that light is actually so blinding that it's like you realize you can't see. Like you have to let go of your, your current perspectives in order to receive more from God. Right. So I hope that clears up that it's not, you know, if you take, that's, where I, that's what I kind of land with often with the students, ends up being the consensus, is if you take just the apophatic part, those atheist critics are right. Like, what, what's the point? You just said God is none of anything that we can conceive. But if you understand apophatic in between the affirmative things we say about God, God is love, but then God is not love, meaning whatever you think love is, he's not that completely. God is ultimately beyond that, then you've got that apophatic theology, or mystical theology. So, anyway, um, today... Um, like the, the, the main thing I want to foc focus on kind of three uh, clearly interrelated points. One is what I hinted at yesterday, which is what my argument is that in a postmodern situation, 
Um, we really need to understand not how to combat with rational arguments and defeat people in a debate and all that sort of thing what their approaches are. We need to look at the ways in which we overlap with this, where we have ideas that overlap with it, and show that we have the best way to, to get at the truths that these types of thinkers are trying to get at. Um, now before I do that, or as I do that, I'm going to uh, start with a very well-known passage from St. Paul that I think shows us that we have the answer to a lot of things that postmodernists and on the flip side Marxists um, who are not postmodernists but also dominant philosophical ideas out there today are concerned about. So it's this passage from St. Paul. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now think about those three categories he puts there. Neither Jew nor Greek. What pressing, still pressing, contemporary issue is that saying? It's race issues, right? In Christ is the answer to race issues. There is neither slave nor free. In Christ there is the answer to class issues. There is neither male nor female. In Christ there is the answer to yeah, gender and sexuality issues. Okay? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to set that out there as the framework. And then we'll kind of come back to this as a touchstone um, throughout. So the other thing I'm going to do is back up, quickly review the positives and negatives like of um, postmodern type thinking, and then kind of say, how do we effectively engage with that, incorporate what is healthy about it, and also be able to like explain what doesn't work about it? Because the positive, one of the positives ident identified about postmodernism and relativism and what it means to say truth is subjective is that, first of all, no one area, science, history, or religion, can claim a total monopoly on the, the sole way to know things about the world. And, and part of the way I talked about that was like, you know, the church has even grown to accept over time that earth, wind, fire, and water are not the basic elements of the universe. Atoms are, okay? The church has grown over the time to understand that the earth actually revolves around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth and all sorts of other things that used to be held. Okay? Um, but likewise, science doesn't get in postmodernity to just tell us that it has all the answers to what it means to be a human being. Another thing that is a positive but brings with it a little, uh, this is where the, the complication or danger comes in, is that it reframes truth not as a set of ideas that you can prove or disprove, but as, as I said yesterday, human experience of truth 
that is the thing that actually moves you. The example I gave um, last night was like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and this kind of way of thinking about it is a fact, but it's not a truth in the sense that how many of you are living your life organized around 2 plus 2 equals 4? It's what gives you your values. It's what gives you your purpose in the morning. It's what gives you, no? No one's built the whole system out of how 2 plus 2, yeah, our, our, our geographer. <laughs> but, um, but even there, it's relative. 2 plus 2 equals 4 as relative to the work you do. <laughs> um, but the um, so then the next question becomes though while, while it's I think a very important thing to understand that truth is seen as the, that thing that gives purpose and meaning and value and creates a certain kind of life that then leads to well how does that not just become a free for all I like this I like that. That's true. That's your truth. It's not my truth. It's a, you know, it's a common, very postmodern phrase today to say, "Bravo for someone for speaking her truth," or "Good for him, speak his truth." It's like this. Have you heard this? This is like a catchphrase now today. Okay, and it's born out of postmodernism. On its healthier side, what it's saying is things like, "My personal experience of the world, my joys, my sufferings, my etc." That's a very real truth that needs to be like listened to. But at its worst, it just kind of turns into, well, that's my truth, and that's your truth, and then, you know, we all just have different truths. Okay. So do we just stay stuck in this position? Well, what I'm going to suggest right now is um, we actually already get this if we reflect on the way we have most effectively evangelized historically. So let's start way back in the second century. St. Justin Martyr. St. Justin Martyr says what? Why did he become a Christian? Anybody know? He said it was the only philosophy that worked. Now, that doesn't mean that logically worked in some sort of like fit all the things together through human reason sort of thing, because that's not how ancient philosophy tended to work. Ancient philosophy was a way of life. What was the best way to live? What philosophy laid down principles that if you live it, it actually delivers at making the most joyful, beautiful, wise, courageous, etc. life? And Justin was basically saying, I tried the Stoics, I tried the Platonists, I tried this, I tried that, then I tried Christianity. That's when it all came together. For Justin, it was a try it out. See it. Actually do it. See if living like Christ gives you what it says it's going to give you. Prince Vladimir. Prince St. Vladimir. How was he converted according to our hagiography? What was the key thing? He sent his emissaries... And it was the beauty, the experiential beauty that he, he sent emissaries to the Catholics, he sent emissaries to us, and he sent emissaries to the Muslims. And it was the beauty that he found in our church that, according to the story, is why 
he converted and Russia converted. Now, what do we tend to say? What is our, especially with this community, the EOC catchphrase, come and see, right? <laughs> come and see. From Justin to Vladimir to today, we've actually understood that this is the most effective way to do it. Arguing about it is not. Paul, on Mars Hill, in the book of Acts, meets with the philosophers. He debates with them for a day, and they're like, hey, this is kind of interesting. Come back and debate with us tomorrow. He's like, mm, sorry, got other things to do. Okay? <laughs> now, again, I think if he felt like it was good faith, like interest, he probably would have come back. I don't know. But, you know, I feel a kinship with my patron, Paul, so... Give me a little leeway there, but no. <laughs> but I think very much you watch his. You watch his. It's not just there. He regularly says he goes and he preaches. And he gives the. He presents it to people, and if they don't want it, you know, he moves on. He preaches it. He tries, tries to demonstrate it. But that's that's what you can do. That's that's what we can do. And if you don't think that's effective, can we all remember? Paul is the greatest missionary in Christian history. He got this thing off the ground. Peter, Andrew, all the way, they're just sitting around in Jerusalem <laughs> for several decades. And Paul's like, okay, somebody's got to reach out to the other people. And they're like, okay, yeah, you go do it. Okay? Now, eventually, they all broke out of their shell. But initially, they were content to just stay there. And it was Paul that went around and evangelize the entire Roman Empire, which in 300 years later converts the entire Roman Empire. So, having just talked about Paul, I will switch over to quoting from another, and this time I'll tell you who it is up front, Friedrich Nietzsche, lover of Christianity. Um, <laughs> so, yes, 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 I do a lot, of, as I said yesterday, you know, my specialty areas are with a lot of this atheist philosophy, but um, yeah, what's ne what are Nietzsche's most famous quotes? God is dead, which is not what people think it means. Um, anybody know what his other most famous quote is? You know this one. You just didn't know it was him. That which does not kill me <laughs> makes me stronger. We use it as like an inspirational quote today because it's taken out of context. He actually says, for those people who have turned out well, that which does not kill them makes them stronger. So the actual implication is, for a lot of people, adversity will destroy them. Right? But Nietzsche's, just again, a lesson in actually going back to the source. You know, we like to quote the fathers the same way. Cherry pick out little inspirational things and not look at the full context. Right? But here's the striking thing about Nietzsche. As anti-Christian as he was, he was anti what he believed Christianity had largely become. The person he thought was the best thinker besides him Ego, very egotistical, yes. 
the person he thought was the best thinker and how to live besides himself was Jesus Christ. So much so that when <laughs> I was in seminary, I'm quoting someone else here, when I was in seminary, a Serbian uh, guy says to me when he sees that I'm studying some of this stuff, he goes, oh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. He's orthodox. He's orthodox. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go that far, but I'm going to read you a few passages from Nietzsche that will show you why he could say that. Okay? And why am I going to Nietzsche? Because Nietzsche is really kind of the figure, along with Soren Kierkegaard, that initiates what becomes postmodernism. Okay? Nietzsche is at the forefront of, of postmodernity. So, the kingdom of heaven is a condition of the heart. It is said of children, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is not something above the earth. The kingdom of heaven does not come chronologically, historically, on a certain day in the calendar. Something that might be here one day, but not the day before. It is an inward change in the individual, something that comes at every moment, and at every moment has not yet arrived. Which is Nietzsche's basically saying, like, what Jesus says. I mean, he's drawing this off of Luke 17, 21, and 22. He says, the kingdom of God is within you which whether it be St. Isaac the Syrian or St. Seraphim of Sarav or all of our major, like that is a pretty foundational orthodox principle that has not been as foregrounded in a lot of Western Christian theology. Again, a lot of Western Christian theology. I'm not here to bash Catholics and Protestants, okay? But the kingdom of God is within you. Emphasis is, you know, Elder Pavlos Vaden, when he came here to speak uh, several years back for the Review of Memphis, he spoke here twice, right? I mean, he's all about this side of the kingdom of God is within you, right? Here's the next Nietzsche passage. Talking about St. Dismas, the thief on the cross. When even the criminal undergoing a painful death declares the way this Jesus suffers and dies without rebelling, without enmity, graciously, resignedly is the only right way. He has affirmed the gospel, and with that he is in paradise. Let's read it again. When even the criminal undergoing a painful death declares the way this Jesus suffers and dies without rebelling, without enmity, graciously, resignedly, is the only right way. He has affirmed the gospel, and with that he is in paradise. Did Nietzsche suddenly become a believer in the afterlife when he said this? No. But what he's saying is, and what he's actually emphasizing, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is a present here and now reality within us. And that is one of the things that the thief on the cross got. Suffering up there with Christ. Literally suffering with Christ. And so... Well, actually, let, let me explain a bit more about what Nietzsche means there. Because Nietzsche, at, like I said, as the forefront of postmodernism, um, is really key to understanding how one can still have a criterion of truth within this kind of way of thinking. Right? Nietzsche's whole philosophy is built around helping liberate human beings from one core thing that we fall into over and over and over again, the desire for resentment and revenge. 
let's just stick with the resentment part. For Nietzsche, this will sound this will sound crazy for someone who's very relativist and very, you know, uh, like I said at the forefront of postmodernism. Nietzsche is insistent that there are eternal truths. That there are eternal truths that are still in this kind of experiential way of life sort of thinking. And one of his eternal truths is this. Resentment saps you of life and makes you an unhappy person. When you live a life resenting other people, and just think about it, when you're at your most resentful feeling, are you full of happiness? Are you full of joy? Are you enjoying life? Okay. Conversely, this, by the way, is why Father Alexander Schmemann was actually something of a fan of Nietzsche's writings and, and the importance of his critiques of Christianity, is you know what Nietzsche thought was the most important thing to cultivate as opposed to resentment? Thanksgiving. That again, another eternal truth is that thanksgiving is the mark of a joyful person. That it's not possible to be truly thankful and to not have joy. That is just a truth about what it means to be a person. You see how, in this sense, even though it's been shifted to an experiential thing, it's also a testable thing. It's also, and it's also something that I've, I've yet, in years of teaching, found someone to actually push back on. Now, granted, there are those moments when we just want to be angry and resentful, right? But it's more of a wallowing, right? It's a temper tantrum that like, kind of feels good for a moment, but it doesn't lastingly feel good. <laughs> One of my shout out here to Father Nicholas. Okay, one of the favorite pieces of spiritual advice I ever got from Father Nicholas. To wake up in the morning, before you get out of bed, find five things that you are thankful for. This is precisely, and like, like Nietzsche would be like clapping. For <laughs> and his whole thing is, why aren't Christians far, first and foremost about this? Nietzsche's like, I look at Christians and really what they're, they're judgmental. They're resentful of everyone that's not like them. They're always paranoid about that they're being like persecuted or something like this. They're just unhappy people. They tell, they tell the world that it's about joy, and then they don't have any of it. And for Nietzsche, it's like, Jesus' way of life, great way of life. It will lead you to happiness and joy. Christendom, Christianity, mm, maybe not so much. That's putting lightly. Say Christian, what Christianity became, and absolutely not. But it's a challenge, right? Let me read one more from him. This is him kind of now glossing the Sermon on the Mount. And think of the resentment side of this here. Neither by deeds nor in your heart should you resist him who harms you. You should admit, right, that turn the other cheek, right? That is a clear. Don't give in to resentment and revenge, sort of thing. You should admit of no ground for divorcing your wife. Again, for Nietzsche, that's because divorce is rooted in growing to resent another person and then end it. 
you should make no distinction between strangers, neighbors, foreigners, and fellow countrymen. And why? Because we resent people that aren't like us. We react against people that aren't like us. You should be angry with no one. You should cont give contempt to no one. Give alms in secret. You should not want to become rich. You should not swear. You should not judge. Right? All of these things tied to resentment. You should be reconciled with your foes. You should forgive. And then he closes with this. Bliss is not something promised. It is there if you live and act in such and such a way. What does he mean by that? And it's actually something that fits back with someone like Karl Marx. Okay. Karl Marx called religion the opiate of the masses. Okay. What did he mean by that? What does an opiate do? What's the difference between an opiate in the way it does things and, say, ibuprofen in the way it does things? Anyone? Ibuprofen and aspirin are what are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, right? meaning they reduce the swelling that's causing the pain. Opioids do not do that. Opioids just trick your receptors into thinking they're happy, but they don't address the root problem at all. When Marx calls religion the opiate of the masses, what he's saying is, for the most part, it allows all the people that are poor and suffering in the world to say, well, it's okay. It's okay that I'm suffering now. I'm distracted by this like religious uplift, and one day when I die, it will be okay. It's this distraction. And for Marx, the reason why he thinks it needs to be taken away is it's like it's for your own health. Right? Meaning, say you start popping Vicodin, right? The most popular opioid prescribed today. Start popping Vicodin because you have really bad headaches. But it turns out you have a brain tumor. What might someone need to do to help you? Take away the opiates so you can feel the pain, so you can actually change things about the world, change things about your life. Get the tumor removed. Okay. Now, where I think oh, we can see that Marx is both right and wrong on this point, meaning He's right that for a lot of people, that's what it is. Just kill the pain away, a way to deal, a way to get through. Come once a week and get your little recharge, and then keep going about all the other things that make you unhappy and that you resent, and so on and so forth. But that's not the whole story. And I think he was blinded to it for a number of reasons. But I would argue if you really listen to Jesus, it's not the opiate of the masses. It should be the great call to action of the masses. The thing that stimulates us to actually act about the things that are tragic about the world. So anyway, let me move back to Nietzsche here. Bliss is not something promised. He actually has something in common with Marx here in the sense that 
bliss as something promised is part of Marx's opiate, meaning what's meant by promised is promised for the future. This life will be junk, you will be miserable, religion will help you kind of get by, but it will turn out okay in the end when you die. But this is what Nietzsche is saying. Bliss is not something promised. It is already there if you live in such and such a way. If you actually are living at, what he's arguing is if you actually live out the Sermon on the Mount, you will live a more fulfilling life. You will live a happier life. You will live a more joyful life. The bliss isn't just for later. It's to be experienced now. And that's what I'm trying to show here, is that in a, in a postmodern situation in which experience is at the core of our culture, experience and what kind of life and what kind of like fulfilling life becomes the main guiding idea of like what truth is, the opportunity that we have or that's before us or the challenge that's before us is to show and to be reflecting on in prayer together, like Father Nichols with your, with your spiritual fathers, with your with spiritual mothers, like Mother Victoria, together in groups and so forth, parish council meetings. Can you imagine if those were actually focused on this sort of thing? Okay. Um, <laughs> um, that all of these things be pointing us or be struggling with or trying to figure out how do we communicate to the world that these different aspects of what we do actually create a more fulfilling life and address the problems that they are concerned about. Returning to also Paul quote at the beginning, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Why do, those why do those tensions and arguments exist? Why does, that, why does this tension, class tension, why does um, gender tension, why does race tension exist? It exists because of all sorts of harm done to people and the resentment that then comes out of it. Paul is saying the answer is in Christ. So, let's start talking about mission in the world. And I think we'll do the Father, which I, the idea that we were talking about before, take a break and then bring them up. really ponder what it would be like if Jesus came back today. Where would he be? He wouldn't be in here. He wouldn't be in here. He'd be at Skid Row. He'd be with his He'd be with strippers and so forth. He'd be with gang members, the tax collectors of that day, were basically like gangsters going around extorting people. And we'd all be like, what are you, what are you doing, Jesus? You're eating with the prostitutes and the drug dealers and the... And what would Jesus' response to be? Response to us to be, be. <laughs> 
I came to heal the sick. <laughs> Not the well. You all think you got it figured out, and you're just wanting to know what to say to other people to win arguments. I'm not saying that that's how everyone thinks. But that would be, like, overall, we have become the new Pharisees. And if Jesus said, was back today, why should we think his ministry would be any different than it was the first time around? Well, that's the thing, is, He's still here. He's us. He's the body of Christ, and that's what we're supposed to be doing. It's what we're supposed to be doing. And so much of why the the world has rejected us on this point is because they're out there doing it, and we're not. Now, why did he spend time He listened to their pain. He met them where they are. And then when they were receptive to him, then he gave them an admonition about how to live a better life. But you don't ever find him going, oh, you want to be healed of leprosy? Go clean up your life. Come back. Why don't you get chrismated? Then I'll heal you. Doesn't, <laughs> hey, prostitute, you need a miracle? <laughs> You're like, leave your profession first and then we'll talk. He does the miracle and then he says, go and sin no more. So often we get this backwards. We want to police everybody's behaviors before we do the love part. It's like conditional love, which is not the love of God. The love of God is unconditional love. So, leaving that as a little thing to ponder as we take a short break, when we come back, I'm going to finish up talking about how, you know, just some few quick little practical ideas of thinking about these gender issues, race issues, and class issues. And then we'll uh, finish up and have some Q&A. Hello, hello. All right. So, um, if you haven't noticed yet, my style is the, uh, well, I, I guess I... This is the way I was trained in seminary by Father Harry Pappas on like giving talks and homilies and so forth. Is he was asked one time, "How do you know when to give a comforting message and how do you know when to give a, a you know punch in the gut kind of message?" And his rule of thumb was, "When the gu- when the gospel is a comforting message, give a comforting sermon. When the gospel is a kick in the pants, give an." A kick in the pants sermon. Okay. So when I was making my comment about where would Jesus be, right, obviously whether or not you expected me to go this direction with these talks, um, I'm going with a more like kind of give us the kick in the pants of how to be the answer um, than I am uh, being like, oh, see, everything's fine. Um, but if you have questions about my kind of rather bold and, you know, arguably over 
overstated to make a point, saying that Jesus wouldn't come here, please feel free to ask me to qualify that more in the Q&A. Anyway, um, so I just want to pick up again with where we left, or where we left off right at the break, or something we talked about right before it is, I mentioned um, Saint Justin Martyr and the, the philosophy that worked, Prince Vladimir, and seeing like the beauty, um, and. Uh, and that even today we say, come and see. Um, but there's, there's a couple of other things also to point out about this, which is in what is my opinion, the healthiest and most dynamic period of the church was its first 300 years when it was under persecution. Which, by the way, is why I have very little patience for when people freak out today that Christians are being persecuted in America today. First of all, I don't think that, that generally speaking, that's true. There are some cases where it's true, but it's generally not true. Um, otherwise, you need to kind of remember the difference between Starbucks coffee cups not having snowflakes and being eaten by lions. They're kind of. <laughs> 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 so, but my second response to if we're becoming persecuted, good. Good, because you know what persecution does? It causes uh, those of us who really aren't committed to the truth of the gospel to leave, and it sharpens as a refining fire those of us that are there. Okay? And it awakens the, those of us to the stakes. Okay? Persecution is a purifying fire. Um, so anyhow, from that early period of the church when there was so much persecution, what were two of the biggest ways besides Paul's evangelism that I was talking about, that the Roman Empire was won over. One is, as Tertullian reports, that see how they love one another. They're embodying this love. They're embodying a better way. They're embodying this kind of, you know, I mean, Christianity, you know, some of the biggest converts in early Christianity were women and the poor. And people from marginalized ethnicities and so on and so forth. Okay? It was a message to all, and it appealed to all in that sort of way. See how they love one another, and then see how they love those who are persecuting and hating them and killing them. The martyrs, the story of the, the martyrs, of people kneeling down in the Colosseum and being eaten by lions while praying for the people in the crowd. Not screaming, you godless atheists, you'll get yours. Okay. <laughs> you pagan Romans, you're going to get it. Ha, ha, ha. Jesus on the cross, you got me now, but wait till I come back next time. Okay. That's not our example. Okay. And this kneeling down, this praying, this Stephen being stoned, the first martyr, Stephen getting stoned to death, and repeating the words of Christ, Father, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. That's the sort of thing that reaches people, that transforms people, because we demonstrate the experiential truth of the gospel to people. So, Let's talk about some of the issues that have become hot-button issues that are part of the 
um, just the water we drink, the air we breathe today, which obviously we're, uh, she's back in Paul's day, race, class, gender. Um, feminism. I say feminism. It's like a loaded word, right? It can mean all number number of things. But as I was just saying, early Christianity was incredibly liberating to women compared to Greek society at the time and Roman society at the time. And quite often, the reason why we don't care about these things, we, again, just don't know history. We don't actually know the history of how horrid culture as a whole and how oppressive it was for so long. Like, when did women get the right to vote in this country? Yeah, so we're not even how long into that. Not even a hundred years. Not even a hundred years. And the biggest thing, that women were treated like property, literally like property, pretty much up until that point. It's significantly left right. Say more. Right, right, and, and right. So even that imperial move, with some of the downside of it, also has these upsides. Yeah, no, there are, there are indeed, and that is one of them, right? He actually changed Roman, and the Christianization of the empire changed, like created better conditions for women, and um, ended things like horrific things like gladiator battles and stuff like that. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And when we think of the ministry of Jesus on the one hand, we think of someone of the best sides of Constantine, the best sides of Justinian, they really actually do provide models how we can be at the forefront of empathetically thinking about why, listening, listening to people. Why do they still feel like there's things that are, why do they still feel like they're discriminated against? Instead of just immediately rushing to what not to do, or what we don't accept. And again, what I say over and over again, we go into that reactionary mode, what Nietzsche called the resentful mode, and it's an unproductive mode. We're always better off affirming what we do believe and affirming the roles we've and good things that people can be doing, then we are opposite. So for example, engaging in debates about women in, in the priesthood or women in the episcopacy or even the diaconate, which is a bit different, but still, um, we're much better off, instead of being in the defensive posture, talking about what our affirmative vision of what the role the value, the importance of women and what we affirm are all the different things that women can do for the church and can do for the church better than men. 
We're always going to be in a stronger position when we're doing that than we are digging in. And that means listening individually, and it means listening collectively, and it means listening with the church fathers, and it means all these sorts of things. Okay? But to just immediately go to, oh, there's no more of this sort of thing. There's no real issue with this anymore. It doesn't fit with that mystical theology I was talking about. There's always more that can be done. There's always greater justice to be striven for. There's always greater reflection on these things that we can do. Homosexuality as another gender issue. And transgenderism. I'm just going to kind of collapse them right now. People are always asking, but what do I say to the gay person? How about I love you? How about I care about you? How about I, I don't know, I don't know what a burden that is. Have you thought about this? We often, like, often we think ourselves as being more empathetic when we say, well, it's just a sin like any other sin. That's actually not true. What do I mean by that? I mean, let's say uh, smoking. I'm not going to say smoking is a sin, but I'm going to say, let's, let's concede the idea that smoking is a sin. If you find tobacco smoke disgusting, if you find it physically repulsive, if it makes you want to gag when you're around a smoker, are you a virtuous person for not smoking? If you have no temptation towards something, <laughs> are you a virtuous person for not doing it? No. And yet so much of our discourse treats it like this is thing. You know, I, I end up having a, a rather robust debate, I'm trying to decide whether I should name him or not. He's a very prominent Orthodox <laughs> figure and theologian who I deeply respect and who deeply respects me on this subject because he was trying to say it's just like anything else. And what I finally came down to was saying, look, unless you're sitting around envious that gay people get to have more fun that you're missing out on, why the axe to grind? Why the axe to grind? Why not an empathy of, oh my gosh, I have no idea what it's like to feel that kind of attraction and to know that if I want to be also like true to like a religion that I grew up in or all this sort of thing, that that's going to mean being celibate. Because I think that clearly is our best answer to that, that issue is that it's not evil to have the feelings any more than it's evil to, ha to have any sorts of logismi, as the fathers call it, thoughts that come to you, that assault you, you know? Like, as some people will admit, like, most guys have an innate impulse to, well, 
that woman's attractive, that woman's attractive, that woman's attractive. It doesn't mean you act on it, but it's in there. It's in there. But if it's in the case of asking our people to be celibate, we're asking them to do something that is a bigger deal than just saying, don't go to strip clubs or something like that. You're asking people to live alone. And that is what we're asking. But that should require deep empathy to understand that they've got a struggle that most of us will never know. Never know. And that kind of engagement, I'm there with you, I love you, and not having this precondition that they've got to clean up before having an encounter with Christ. To not, to not waver in what we think is the ultimate goal of redemption for that person, but not make it like, one, the game is having arguments with them is the answer, or to just drive them away. Or to reverse it, say, go and sin no more, then show up. That's right? <laughs> just not how Jesus did things. And one other thing I want to, I want to double down on that celibacy thing, because one of the other things I think is dangerous that has crept into our church from evangelical Protestantism is the conversion therapy thing. That is not our tradition. Try and find it somewhere. It's not our tradition. Monasticism was always seen as the call, or celibate life in the world was always seen as the call by the church. Not trying to reprogram someone. I always find it very, like, just like, oh, man, we're fighting a losing battle here when I see, I get these me emails of Orthodox flipping out. They're trying to ban gay conversion therapy. And who cares? That's not even our thing. That's not our way of showing love and, and providing answers to the gay community. What about race issues? America loves to talk about race. Race. You know, race is over. There's no racism anymore. Boy, I don't have time to tell you how wrong that is. <laughs> it's not just slavery, which we tend to not really ponder how horrid that was. But Jim Crow. You want to have another Jim in the Jim Crow era? They wrote laws because of the way the 13th Amendment is. It says slavery is abolished unless you are in prison. So they wrote all sorts of laws in the South of how like loitering was like basically a felony offense. If you're just standing around loitering, arrested, convicted, and thrown right back into the plantation. This is a whole aspect of American history nobody talks about. This went on for decades. You get to the 20th century, and under FDR, you get what's called redlining. They drew zones around ethnic communities 
with red lines saying, no one in this area can get a home loan. That lasted until the 70s. And recent studies have shown that there's still discriminatory practices where people with the same credit rating get different percentages correlating to their ethnicity. These things linger and they have consequences and people can't, you know, why are we not at the forefront of empathizing with this and trying to, when we think about our political involvement in things, just as much as abortion, this should be something we deeply care about. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you think of someone like Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood. Okay. It actually is relevant today. There is still a disproportionate number of abortions that go on in those communities because of poverty. Right. Which is, again, the point is, don't, don't hear me as what you think I'm saying. Okay, hear me out. Okay. Now, it disproportionately affects those communities just the way things like the war on drugs do and so on and so forth which means if we want to have an answer, if we really care about abortion, the first and foremost thing is to care about poverty and getting rid of the root causes of what lead people to want to get abortions. I mean, this notion that like every woman out there getting an abortion is some like psycho baby killer instead of driven mostly, mo the majority of them, by a deep sense of economic need, is key. And this is borne out by that. Anybody know what are the two countries with the lowest abortion rates in the world? Germany and the Netherlands, where it's completely legal. But Overall, in their society, women just don't feel the need to get them because there is a society that where they take care of each other and so on and so forth. Where are the highest abortion rates? In Latin American countries, where it is illegal in a lot of them. If we really want, if we really care about these issues, we need to think deeper than just the political structure of what is legal and illegal. And we need to empathize with and, and and work with these sorts of things. So now with the economic issue, I'll end with another quote of Karl Marx here, who was a man of greed, someone who does not rest content with what is sufficient, who is a cheater, Someone who takes away what belongs to others. Are you a man of greed? Are you not a cheater?
taking those things which you have received for the, stake, for the sake of stewardship and making them your own. Now someone who takes a man who is clothed and renders him naked would be called a robber. But when someone fails to clothe the naked, which is able to, when he is able to do this, is such a man deserving in, of any other appellation? The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chest belongs to the naked. The footwear moldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. However many you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. Forgive me, I lied to you. That's St. Basil the Great, not Karl Marx. <laughs> What's my point? Basil has the answers. If we actually take these fathers seriously and live the way they command us to live, there would have never been any Marxism. We have the answers, but we got to be the answers. We got to preach the gospel and, when necessary, use words. <laughs> we need to preach the gospel first and foremost by our lives and secondarily by our words. And I've gone on long enough, so we can now go to Q&A. Yeah, I, I first of all will say it's a, it's a thorny issue, and I also don't think that a one-size-fits-all approach is going to work with, with every single um, person. But my concern I think is, first of all, that we reflect on our double standards on this. Right. In other words, I just read this stuff from Basil. Right. And yeah, I don't know of a single bishop in our church who has excommunicated one of our wealthy business types for greedy and unethical business practices, or for not following the command to give to those in need. So, and they can be even often rebuked in sermons and confessions. That they'll never be cut off. And the sad reality is, why? Because they're probably also the ones given the biggest money. That sends a very hypocritical message. Which one of these things did Jesus talk about far more? You cannot serve God and mammon. <laughs> That's the one that runs throughout all of his preaching. And yet somehow, you know, because what we'll say is like, obviously, with homosexuality, because the, if someone's actively living that lifestyle, we can't admit them to communion according to our beliefs and practices. But the same would, should apply if, these kinds of things. And so we're rather selectively applying what kind of lifestyles are deal breakers and which ones aren't. And I think that is a first step, step right? Because I have a, like a deep collective reflection on that sort of thing. 
why are we singling out this stuff and not other things? Right? And then, and then also being able to express and clearly say, like, you know, I mean, none of these are perfect answers, but one of the ways to kind of talk about it is like, yeah, it's with we well see we have to get our we have to like said get our ducks in a row so to speak first right but um, on this other stuff but if we did what we could start being able to say more effectively is everyone struggles with things as long as you're struggling right like we don't people that struggle with internet pornography we don't just ban them but if someone's like, nah, I don't think there's anything wrong with internet pornography. I'm going to watch it every day and have no, I'm not going to confess about it anymore. Like, that's grounds for like not going to the cuff until you change that attitude. Right? Um, that's really what we're saying. In other words, someone who's at least made the intent to try and grapple with this. Uh, my argument would be that we should be considering that that like the ways in which they would be admitted to the cup, but also be given penances when like slipping back into stuff, right? But it it's only going to come across as loving if we're doing that across the board with all sorts of habitual grave sins. Um, is that helpful? At least you know. And again, for me, it's like I don't have answers to it, but there's these are thoughts that we need to be kind of reframing the conversation to you and the way we think about these things. Th thank you for that because that actually gives me another model for trying to explain also the, the um, further about the apophatic theology, right? The icons do depict that in the sense that the icon reveals to us Christ, but the reason why Protestants often think we're idols, it's an idol, is that we think it's like it is Christ and can be treated exactly like Christ, as though Christ does not infinitely exceed the icon. Right? The way St. Dionysius talks about icons, it's not just those. He calls the creed an icon. He calls the scriptures an icon. He calls all of these things icons. Right? They're portals that give us a picture of it, but that we need to always be growing towards what's behind the image. And sometimes we just limit ourselves to the painted pictures, but the gospel, the creed, the liturgy, all of these things are icons in that sense. I think, I think in that regard, I mean, this is what's so powerful about, um, because Val said my, my go-to is really, like, you want to look at orthodoxy before, you know, like, orthodoxy in the first 300 years, which we don't really study enough, is before it got corrupted by politics and all these other sorts of things that became like huge problems. And not just corrupted. What happens when it becomes the religion of the empire? It's, it's now just, well, first even under Constantine, it's the cool thing to do, right? Like now it's like, you want to have upward mobility? Sure, why not? Like this god, that god, they're all pretty good. And this one gives me like economic advantages. Okay? Um, by the time you get to Theodosius in 380 and then Justinian later, I mean, it's like kind of a be a functional member of society, almost an imperative, which means you've got a whole lot of chaff and a very little bit of wheat. Right? So, the um, so the first three centuries are, are generally a bit the best place to look. But this is what is so important about the lives of the saints. Right? The lives of the saints 
are where we see this sort of thing, glimmers of it and so forth. Also, particular healthy monasteries are, are, are images and remnants of this kind of, you know, think about how monasteries worked, right? Everyone, yes, there's an abbot, and yes, there's like the spiritual other, but everyone is equal and doing the same, like collective work for the monastery, okay? And nobody owns any property. They're all in common. They're a model for that kind of letting go of oneself and one's ego that we can see. But like another example, you know, um, especially thinking about how we live in tough times in a culture that is very antithetical to our values. St. Maria Skopsova, St. Maria of Paris, right? I don't know how many of you know her story, but she, she ran a poorhouse in Paris um, and had a very tight community there in, in Paris that was very active and non, completely non-discriminatory, non-judgmental, and so forth in its outreach to the poor. And then when the German occupation happened, she converted her poorhouse into a place of smuggling Jews out of France. And then she eventually was captured and she was gassed at Ravensbrück concentration camp and became a martyr and is now St. Maria of Paris and there's a street in Paris named after her. I think she's a powerful example of it functioning that way. But I think the church collectively functioning that way, we finally have the opportunity, now that it is not church and state tied together, it's not manipulated by these powers, to actually become that again if we start working at that. Like the situation we find ourselves in now is a lot more like the third, the third century, second century, first century than it is like those other periods. So we actually have a real opportunity to try and become that again because the people that choose to become Christian are choosing it because they want it, not because someone is cramming it down their throat or because there's guard. I mean, I mean, think about not only in the West but in the Byzantine Empire. You used to be, you would be fined for not going to church every week. Fined. Someone thrown in jail, right? <laughs> no, it, it is a lot like the way Mormons operate today, okay? Um, talk about a meta-narrative that denies reality, right? Like they create a whole fake science that says there is the, you know, these ancient Israelites here in America and you know, all these kinds of things. <laughs> they're totally at odds with both history and science's findings, but they're, they'll force it in there. Okay, but anyway, I don't want to go off on Mormons. But did that, I mean, it's, they're not, they're not times when collectively as a whole, like, but there are, there are patches of it. Um, yes, and that's where I feel like so many of our young people, especially when they go to college, they get passionate about some of these values, and part of the, where they end up deciding, like have this crossroads of whether to stay in the church or not, is they feel like the church is at odds with these things that they want to do to make the world a more just and beautiful place. When the irony is the church ought to be, and if we want to keep a robust thing with the youth, showing that the church is the best place to get these things done. <laughs> uh huh. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I hinted at this, but I didn't maybe draw it out as much as I could. It's really kind of like they are the two most, I would say, dominant philosophical systems of the 20th century and, the, and, and still now today. They compete with each other, um, obviously, because Marxism is a much more meta-narrative type, you know, has a whole view of how things ought to go, which is why it did a lot of horrific things, especially in its Marxist-Leninist variety. But what I was trying to show is that these two things that even though they don't have in common in, a lot in common with each other all the time, Christians tend to react against them and perceive them as our enemies. And what I'm trying to do with this talk is to say there are profound truths in both the postmodernists and in the Marxists that we have, instead of being like, that's why they're wrong, it's like, no, here's why we have arguably more compelling answers to the same issues, instead of saying, no, those aren't issues, which is what the church is tending to do. I, I see a proliferation of articles, um, and this will speak directly to your question, blaming postmodernism and, and a so-called cultural Marxism for apparently destroying society and destroying the church. And I think that's exactly, that's a losing strategy. That, that reactionary, like, dig in and then just get defeated over time strategy. Instead of recognizing where the common ground is and emphasizing how the church can be the embodiment of, of those, whatever is true and good and noble and pure in those areas. I think science is, I mean, I, I absolutely love science just not scientific reductionism, as we were talking about last night. But yeah, I think that is another area. And, and that's kind of what I was hinting at in the post, is like the, the best side of postmodernism, in my view, is, is allowing religion, science, and history all to have voices together and learn from each other, instead of just fighting for who has the claim over all, all knowledge. And to let it inform, you know, to let it inform, like, oh, you know, now that we see it that way, the compassionate, now that this scientific discovery has been made, the most compassionate Christ-like response would be this. Right? Like, we have to discern these sorts of things when we, you know, a lot, there are certain church fathers who used to think that, you know, the erroneous thing that the entire fetus was contained in the sperm and that the woman was just the, like, kind of ground that it was planted in, right? Well... There's all sorts of, you know, theologies surrounding gender and reproduction and sexuality that came from that basis. Well, we now know that basis is not correct. Can we be open to thinking what is the proper theological Christ-like response given what we now understand to be science? Yeah, yeah, Marx, and it's specifically Marx wanting to key in on the, the freedom from oppression and, and message to the poor and oppressed that Christ had, and, and on the flip side, Nietzsche trying to point us towards thanksgiving and away from resentment that Christ had. Yeah, for example, in, in For the Life of the World, he specifically talks about the atheists Ludwig Feuerbach and Friedrich Nietzsche, and basically says they were right up 
to a point, but here's another way of looking at it. But instead of him coming into like, I'm going to prove why Feuerbach's wrong, I'm going to prove why Nietzsche's wrong, he's going to say, actually, I'm going to focus on where they're right and what that means we need to do to actually fulfill the things that they've critiqued about us. Right? And he actually does that with all sorts of other like thinkers that would be considered postmodern besides besides those, well, Feuerbach's not really, but you know, besides those two. I mean, in his journals, he engages with Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, all the, you know, all these figures everyone reads in college or mostly reads in college. Okay. Um, the one person he never does that with is Marx. And I was asked one time at a major academic conference, like, why, why do I think that is? And, and my suspicion, empathetically, is it's too raw, right? Given what Marxist Leninism did to Russia, he wasn't quite ready to uh, take the honey and separate out the badness <laughs> from, from what was there. But I think his, his same ethos still applies with someone like Marx. Um, ooh, that's a big one. So direction, a couple thoughts I have on that. Um, the first one is that um, things have changed dramatically since the time when Marx was first writing in the 1800s to now. And what I mean by that, like um, Slavoj Žižek, who is probably the most prominent contemporary Marxist philosopher, actually has written a book saying it's called the fragile absolute because, as uh, you were pointing out, the Marxists are not postmodernists. They don't believe in relative truth and so forth. So Zizek is saying the fragile absolute, and then the subtitle is why the Christian legacy is worth fighting for. So he's a Marxist that is actually very pro-Christian, and that is becoming increasingly common. Like the hostility is is dropping away. I would argue that it's corporate America that in many cases is our bigger foe that's undermining us without us realizing. Okay. So let's, let's give an example. The holiday tree, right? Holiday tree is a great example of the war on Christmas as people go in and out of we're so persecuted, okay? Because they called it a holiday tree instead of a Christmas tree and it's a Lutheran thing anyway. anyway. But that, <laughs> but, Let's step back and go meta here. What's actually at stake in Holiday Tree? It's selling more product. Slowly over time, when you rebrand, you can start selling the trees to the little Jewish kids that feel like they're missing out and the little Muslim kids that feel like they're missing out. It's not a Christmas tree. It's a holiday. It's everyone. Buy the Holiday Tree. And this isn't, it's, it's just like the real war on Christmas is the consumerism. The idea that Christmas, first and foremost, is this purchasing commodity. It's a children's holiday. It used to be the holiday of the poor. You know what Christmas carolers used to be about? You know why Scrooge hated them? It was like trick or treat. The poor people would carry all at your door. And if you didn't invite them in for food and drink, and keep in mind, this is before harsh winters are going to come and kill off a bunch of the poor. It's like, we're singing, we're giving you some joy. Can you give a little back before half of us are going to die? And then if people didn't <laughs> let them in, they would turn into like trick or treat where they would throw stuff at their house and so on and so forth. 
But in the early um, 19th century in New York, the St. Nicholas Society, founded by Washington Irving and others, actually concertedly transformed Christmas from a day about the poor to a day about kids and consumerism for kids. So often, I think, in that sense, we're looking at, we're looking at, uh, we're not looking at uh, the enemy within that's actually got us, right? The other thing that you were saying about, like, oh, would this have, have happened otherwise? Um, I mean, uh, I mean, the early Christians held all things in common. If that really had continued, if that really was the model, if it wasn't just preserved now in monasteries, Marxism just would not have happened. There would be no need for it. What would be the need for it? Right? It would have never. It would have never come along. Right? Um, and and what people have to what we don't what we don't realize is religion itself relates to the state and so forth in very different ways than it used to. So like in Marx's time, what you really typically had, out of what you think of like Charles Dickens' novel and so forth like that, but in that time period, Christianity in England was saying like no to be a good little go suffer in the coal mines go wash the you know and that's how you'll. That's how you get to heaven when you die one day. So when you put it in that kind of context, it's very easy to understand why Marx hated the thing so much. If religion was not the thing that was doing that, right? Like, like if, if Marx was born in the, in the 300s, I'm pretty convinced he would have been like, like converted to Christianity most likely, or at least been really sympathetic towards it. Because in those writing, his own writings, he is. So, yeah, it's not, you know, I mean, none of these things are like automatic transactional like things that are going to, but the point is we, we need to start having uh, a sense of like where we have um, similar values at least up to a point with people. And the more that we are embodying that, the more people will have buy-in. The more that we just seem like a, I don't know, a, a self-help club a couple times a week or once a week. The more that just becomes like all the other self-help clubs, right? And the more a person feels like, I don't know, I get more peace and whatnot out of going to yoga class than I do having weird political judgmental conversations at coffee hour. And this is the thing that happens to parishes all around, you know? People are going to see it because they're not, it's like, it's like we, we have the conceptual truth, but we're not giving them that other thing. Now, at the end of the day, it's not going to convert everybody. Not everybody wants it. You can show the, you know, like, ah, the example, I forgot to mention before, right? Another one of the, like, existential, experiential side of this is the story of St. Andrew's conversion. The hagiography of St. Andrew is that he's being brought before the local governor near where uh, Constantinople was eventually founded. And the Roman emperor is just mocking him, mocking him with like, how can you believe in this crucified God and all this ridiculous stuff? And we persecute you people all the, every day and throw you to lions and this and that. 
your God was real, he would stop this. How could you believe in him? And what was Andrew's response? Become his disciple and you will know. Live it. Live the way he lived. And that's the way to know that it is true. That was Andrew didn't go, well, you know, let me take you through, explain to you. Here's Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You know, he didn't do that. <laughs> Become his disciple and you will know. But that takes us being disciples to actually even show people that. But the point is, still there, the governor doesn't convert. It's not going to convert everyone still. You've got to understand it, but we at least need to be at the place where we can say, we gave, them, we gave the best picture of Christ possible, the truest picture of Christ possible, so that when people rejected, they're rejecting Christ and not rejecting us and our sins. Could I, could I add a quick thing to your idea, of, uh, what you were saying about the, um, him visiting? In my more, obviously I was trying to push buttons, sorry about that. In my more nuanced way of putting it is, you know, Jesus went to the synagogue. But we also he preached the truth in the synagogues, and some people from there followed him, some people didn't. He also went to the temple, and he flipped tables. Right? But what I think he would really do, like along with what Father Nicholas was saying today, is he would come, and he would do all those things. He would comfort us, he would minister to our illnesses, especially those of us that are cultivating and being in tune with our weaknesses and illnesses. Then he'd give us the admonition, and then he'd walk out the door and say, come follow me out into these streets. And the real question then there is, do we just stay inside, or do we follow him out there? Anyway, <laughs> and thank you for having me.